Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Carol Morris, and she'll be answering your questions on photography, how to capture what you see. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we are broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Carol a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Look in the right-hand column and you'll see a form to sign up. Just fill in your name and email address and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. We've got some buttons on the site there on the homepage, and you're welcome to, to share the, the knowledge and what's happening here on Ask About Fly Fishing. I also want to let you know about a new social media app that I will be using for conversations on fly fishing. It's called Clubhouse. I will be hosting a room on Clubhouse every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Clubhouse is like a conference call where people can talk with each other live. I've invited the top fly fishers that have been on many of my shows to join the conversations. If you're a member of Clubhouse, follow me on Clubhouse and you'll be notified when I open the rooms. If you're not a member, you need to have an iPhone right now because it's not available for Android yet. And you need to be invited as well. So if you need an invitation, just contact me. Just write me at roger at askaboutflyfishing.com. Send me a message and say, hey, I'd like an invitation to Clubhouse. And send me your cell phone number and I'll get you an invitation. Also, I'll be hosting that room every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. So hope to see you there and join in the conversation about fly fishing. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing Business is Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Carol Morris about photography, how to capture what you see. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dweller's Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com. That, again, is Lee's ferryanglers.com or call them at 800-262-9755. That's 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Carol, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. 
Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Carol's section that says register for a free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a Stackpole book of your choice from a list that I have available to me. And if you, you'll be able to select one of the books from that list that I'll send you if you win. Uh, and how you win is that you must be the first person to answer a question or questions. Sometimes I do a two-part question that I ask at the end of the show. And the question will be something that Carol and I talk about during the show. You must submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. So take good notes, listen closely, type fast, because the first one in wins, first correct answer in wins, and uh, see if you can't win a, a book from Stackpole Books. Our guest tonight is Carol Ann Morris. Carol is a fly fishing photographer, speaker, videographer, an artist, an illustrator, and she partners with her husband, fly designer and author Skip Morris, on his fly fishing books, articles, and instructional videos. Her Etsy store, Carol A. Morris Fly Fish, features photos, artwork, and custom pieces that reflect her love of fly fishing. Prior to being self-employed as a full-time artist and photographer, Carol worked as a small animal veterinarian, both as a practiced owner and relief vet, and is now retired after 30 years. Over the past two decades, Carol's photographs and paintings have not only appeared in most of her husband's, Skips 21 fly fishing and tying books, but also on the covers and interior pages of such magazines and books as Gray's Sporting Journal, Fisherman, Yale Angler's Journal, American Angler, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and America's Favorite Flies. She has performed her PowerPoint show, Fly Fishing Photography 101, How to Capture What You See, all over the West in Washington, Oregon, British Columbia, California, New Mexico, and the East in Michigan and Ohio at fly fishing clubs and sportsman shows and fly fishing expositions. Carol, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you so much, Roger. Nice to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. Sorry we bombed last week. I'm sorry <laughs> to you, Carol, and I'm sorry to everybody out there listening. We just had technical difficulties that I couldn't solve in time to, to do the show. But we're all ready to go and raring to go now. So, uh, And we have just That's a right. ton of questions, Carol, as you've seen, uh, the ones that have come in already. And, of course, uh, people may be asking them during the show as well. So are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, this one came in, and I just thought it would set the stage for our whole conversation tonight from Jim Budd in Lincoln, Nebraska. And Jim wrote in and he says, a professional photographer once told me the average person doesn't understand why the photo seldom turns out as expected. The reason, he said, is pros see what the camera sees. Amateurs see what they want to see. So finally, the question, if his statement is true, how do I see what the camera sees? <laughs> That's a great question. Thank you, Jim. And first of all, his statement is true. I do believe that. And so there are two parts to this question. One is what the pros see as how they see the camera sees. We're talking about the camera being technology, including the lens and, and the camera body, and then we're talking about how we see biology as humans. So in the first part, what the camera sees, this is what I did way back when I first started shooting and getting assignments and all that stuff, is the first thing you really need to do 
is learn the basics of how all cameras work. So library books are great. I had a stack of them. Just learn the basics and the fundamentals very well. And then the second thing in that part of the question is whatever camera you have, as far as a phone, digital film, doesn't matter, get the manual, take two or three things out of that, the things that you think that you'll be using the most, learn that very well. Because the way the pros know what the camera sees is by learning about the camera and then going out and shooting with it. So the other part of the question as far as amateurs see what they want to see, I would say we all start out there. It's like that thing you hear about selective hearing. If you've ever tried to train a <laughs> yeah. dog or teach a kid, they hear what they want to hear. Well, it's the same thing with photographers, anybody that's shooting. When you start out, you see what you want to see in an image. And part of that has to do with not being aware. So much we're out there unconscious, pointing the camera, taking the picture. And that's how we all start. That really is how everybody starts. And then you get the picture back and you go, well, wait a minute, that's not really what I was looking at or what I wanted to take a picture of. And it kind of goes without saying that the camera, wherever you point it, it's going to take a picture of everything that's in within its field of view. And so often when we're looking at a scene, there's something that is compelling about that image, but we're including too much. And there are things in there that are distracting from the message. So those are really the main points. You can really go deep into this question. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I think the big thing is understanding the fundamentals extremely well about what your camera can or can't do and then how it alters our vision when we're looking you know, through the camera. And part of that is, yeah, training yourself, right? I mean, after you work as a commercial photographer or a professional photographer in whatever realm, you – automatically because of your training is you see those things that later turn up to be just terrible looking in photographs like a tree coming out of somebody's head or a branch sticking in the left that you know, I mean there's all these extraneous things that just taking a step left or right might fix the problem but you're not seeing them because you haven't trained yourself to see those things yet yeah um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I see. And the other thing that I see about that is, especially with people or animals, I think you get emotionally involved, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you're looking at the person. You're not looking at everything else because you're so involved with that person that you're trying to capture. Consequently, you forget everything else, unless you've been trained to you, know, you train yourself right. to do that. Yeah. Where your focus is, is to the detriment of everything else that may be in that picture. And the camera right. doesn't discriminate. <laughs> so that's exactly, where Exactly, yeah. That's it's, where, it's, yeah. Yeah, it, and it, that's it's, where it's photography really gets to be a workout. It's more work than I ever thought when I started is because you have to be conscious and aware and looking at what you're actually seeing and what is it about that area that's compelling and oftentimes you're taking a picture that it has multiple pictures within it or things right. that are distracting from whatever your story is that you're trying to tell. And believe it or not, I think it used to be harder <laughs> on film or if you're still using yeah. film than digital. I mean, nowadays we can blur stuff out after the fact or we can Photoshop this or that. Now they even have, you can take this woman on one beach out of the photograph and put her on another beach. Right. It's like it's yeah. a cut and paste. But when you were right. back in and the it, film days, you had to get it right the first time. I mean, you didn't have a choice. For sure. You know? 
Yeah, yeah. that post-processing is a whole different realm in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And shooting with slide film, I started shooting with slide film, and that was really different. And I think the thing that really got me, there's always usually one thing that kind of pushes you into, oh, the camera really does see differently than I do. And for me, with slide film, it was that the human eye sees in 10 stops of light, and the camera sees in five. And what that means to the photograph is that anywhere you have something that's sort of black but not quite black, it's going to just turn it black. And anything that's sort of white but not quite white, it'll turn it white. So you lose detail. The bottom line is you lose detail. But knowing that, that really pushed me into looking at more and more of the effects that I could get with the camera and how it could see versus what I was seeing. And I think that's the other thing that we're going to hopefully discuss here is the cameras, whether it be a, a phone or a, a high-end SLR or whatever. In the same respect that shooting on film was maybe harder in the past because you had to get it right, nowadays shooting in digital can be you know, even more complex because there's so many buttons to push, right? So many settings right. you can use. And I like the way you said earlier, simplify it. Try to learn one or two or three aspects of your camera well and master those, and then you can move on to learn more advanced things. And I think that's a good tip for everybody to learn. Yeah. We've got a ton of questions here, Carol, on cameras. And so I'm going to read off some of the names and a few things they're looking for. Jim in Utah, what's a good pocket size waterproof point-and-shoot camera? Robert in Las Cruces, New Mexico, can you recommend a camera? to carry while fishing that's not a burden but has enough features to compose pictures. Sure. I mean, there's a whole bunch of these. If we don't mention your name tonight, folks, uh, just know that we're going to try to cover this. But uh, Carol and I you know, talked a little bit about this, and we thought we'd kind of roll through some of the different options that you have nowadays. So, Carol, where do you want to start? Do you want to start the high end or the low end? or? <laughs> where? Or, should we or start where? I think when I read through these, just with a point and shoot that people like would like to use to take out some of the caveats with, with that. I have used a Canon point-and-shoot just to play around with before, but the one that keeps coming up over and over again, and I haven't gone out and gotten it because I think the thing with equipment really is just get what you need and no more because you, you can end up with a lot of equipment, no problem. So you kind of have to just discover what is going to work for you to get the image that you want. That's really important. But the one that keeps coming up over and over again, and I've asked many people about it, some of them pro photographers, some of them people that have just used them and they like them, and that's the Olympus Tough camera because it's an underwater camera. To I think it's 12 megapixels. It shoots in RAW. It does a lot of things so you can adjust exposure and things like that. And it still might be too much for some people that want just something simple. And I think if you want something simple, you can't go wrong with the camera on your phone. Because even I have an, an older iPhone 7, but it's 12 megapixels. And for slipping in my pocket and just having it ready without having to carry a lot of equipment if I'm not on a shoot, it works great. When you're looking at cameras like that, like the Olympus Tough, I like the fact that it was waterproof. I would get something that, if it wasn't waterproof, that had a waterproof casing and it also get a, either a wrist strap or something that was on like a cord that would go on my belt that if I dropped it, I could pull it back up. 
But around water, that's a particular problem that you kind of have to address. I fortunately over the years have only gotten in trouble once that I can think of with water. So I consider myself fortunate. But anyway, that's where I would start is look at that Olympus Tough. And the other thing is I usually typically what I do is go with name brand cameras. So I go with Canon or Nikon first, and then I'll look at the others. But I typically won't come out or do the latest model that came out. It's more looking at the one that's a proven model that's going to be going out, that they're no longer going to sell. And you can usually find those for a great deal. I shoot with a Nikon D700, and it is heavy, but it's a pro camera. It's really just kind of a workhorse, and I've gotten used to it over the years. I love it, and I wouldn't change... I wouldn't change my camera equipment unless I really needed to. And right now, I just what I'm using is working great for me. And that's you might buy more lenses or something for your SLR yes. or something. But yeah, but well, and, but the and base camera. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you can switch lenses out, great. And I think that gets to another question that was brought up on whether I use prime or zoom lenses too. And I'm definitely because at least in in our field in fly fishing. A uh, zoom lens is so much easier because you don't have to switch lenses out, and the action is happening fast, and some of this stuff goes by in seconds. You know, It's really important to be ready, to have everything ready and ready to go at all times. I can't tell you how many shots I've missed over the years. There have been a lot. But the thing is, overall, whatever equipment you choose is to keep it simple, easy, and accessible for whatever shot you want. Yeah, I think that's important because, and I really like your idea about the Olympus. And Olympus has been a a good brand that's been around for decades. It has been, yeah, Uh, even before they um, made Yeah, I mean, just as as a general SLR and so forth, they've been around for a long time. Right. But So they're a good company, I think, as well. But when you have, the thing about having a waterproof camera like that is, no worries, right? I mean, if you yeah. like you say, as long as you have it tied to your vest or something or mm-hmm. whatever, if you drop it, who cares? I mean, you're right. It's going in the drink and uh, you're fine. But if one thing that I've always worried about is no matter what kind of camera, if it's not waterproof, and especially if you're out waiting, right? I mean, if you're out waiting, yeah. you could always slip and fall, and there goes your camera. Because if it goes in the water, you're likely not going to get it back. I mean that in working yeah. condition, right? Especially if it's right, salt. Right. But yeah, they have that commercial, what is it? I don't know if it's what insurance company where they have the, the phone <laughs> on the dock and he and he gets hit by a wave and then he throws he throws himself into a bag of rice to try to recover to get yeah, the moisture right. out. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen that one. <laughs> it's funny, yeah, because they always say, oh, well, put your electronics in rice or something. I don't know if that works or not. I've never tried it. And the it, freezer. But, yeah, I've read all uh, kinds of things about that. And yeah. I, yeah, I think when you're out there with the camera, and no matter where I am, I mean, this goes for when you're waiting or not. I typically have a waiting staff, and, and there, I actually, for a while, I was using a monopod that I had that I could attach the camera to that I used as a waiting staff, and I had my camera with me. Well, that's but a good I idea. I think that yeah. thing, too, yeah, that works very well because you can kind of do double duty. It's so easy to get burdened down with a lot of stuff, and I've mm-hmm. simplified my equipment over the years. And literally with my waders, so when I'm using my, and I do shoot with an iPhone, like I mentioned, the iPhone 7, and my waders, 
um, my Patagonia waders, there's a really tough inner waterproof pocket, just like a Ziploc, but it's about uh, five times as thick as that with a seal across the top, and that's where the camera goes. And so I can just reach in and undo that and pull it out and take the picture, but I always make sure I'm set, like my feet are set and everything is solid before I do that, just to kind of take care of any problem that might come up. I don't have a wrist strap for it, which kind of makes me nervous all the time, but so far it's been fine. So it goes back in that, because some people were also asking about, is there a small bag to use? Right. Honestly, Skip and I use Ziplocs, the freezer Ziplocs all the time, and if I'm really worried about it developing a hole, I'll double bag it, and at least I have it in that, and then I'll slip it in my fish pond bag. And I would, for me, what works better on the bag end of it is to have something that goes around your hips, because if you're using shoulder straps, which you can on lighter packs, my shoulders fatigue really quickly, but my hips don't. So mm-hmm. I've got it right there. I can take it out and use it, and I use a little fish pond fanny pack. So that's mm-hmm. kind of what I use, something like that. But but really the thing is to be set and to have your camera ready. Take all all the problems that you can anticipate or things that take you a long time. Try to do that ahead of time. And I think the other thing that's important with any camera, no matter which one you have, is not only plan, but practice with it before you ever get out there. Just get comfortable holding it and shoot with it a lot. That solves more problems than anything. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about phones because that's probably mm-hmm. where a lot of people will start, and almost everybody has a phone nowadays, right? And right, even like right. you have an iPhone 7, which is about six versions behind, Carol. But. Right. It is. It is. <laughs> That's all right. I, for me. <laughs> I, think, I think mine's a seven, Carol. I mean, a six. Yeah. So I think you're one you're ahead of me. a six. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's like for yeah, me. Yeah, as long it's, as it works, you know. Yeah, right. It's still yeah. working. I'm not playing video games on it or anything. It works fine for me. But and the phones were much better than the first digital cameras that came out as far as megapixels. Yeah, they, oh, for sure. I, I mean, my, the, my uh, iPhone 7 is a 12-megapixel camera. My yeah. first digital DSLR was 6 megapixels. This one's yeah. taking better pictures than that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and we'll talk more okay. about how to use phones and how to get good pictures with phones and so forth. So hang tight, everybody. We'll be back in just a minute. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook, all within a few miles of each other. But you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie fly fishing, you're on a private island and only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesliefly.fishing.com. Again, that's charlielesliefly.fishing.com, or call 303-430-4634. That's 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Carol Morris about photography, how to capture what you see. And if you'd like to ask Carol a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible 
on the show tonight. And Carol, at this point in the show, I always ask my guests, what's going on in your fly fishing world? I know you and you and Skip just finished the book, right? You both worked on that one? Yeah, we did. We finished a couple of e-books. It was the 500 Trout Streams and then Top 12 Nymphs. We redid that one. There's the second edition out now. They're both e-books. Yeah, we've become book publishers, too, now. <laughs> Just <for> everything else. <laughs> yeah, and we yeah. posted a lot of your books on the, the site for people to see there tonight on the homepage and on your profile page and so forth. So Yeah, can, we uh, noticed that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah so yeah. people can investigate. Yeah, so what else are you guys up to? Well, what's happened since this whole the whole pandemic started, we everything kind of converted to Zoom as far as presentations. And we've had a lot of club and the fly fishing show talks. We've got a fly fishing show. Both of us have a talk coming up with their classes with the experts. I'm doing my photography presentation. It's a two-and-a-half-hour class with a photo critique at the end. So anybody that participates in the class can submit three photos and we'll go over them at the end with the principles that we use in the class ahead of time. So one thing that's coming up on April 6th, Skip is doing a beginning fly fishers class on April 3rd. And aside from working on the books, he's writing every day. So I've got my hands full doing a lot of illustrations for that and photography for that. And a lot of those do end up in my Etsy store the Carol A. Morris fly fish. And I've done some custom things through there that really, if I were to take one thing out of that store that I just love doing, it's the custom pieces. And most of them ah. have been shadow boxes. Some of them have been custom paintings, but Skip and I work on those together. So he ties the flies and I do the paintings or the photography for it. So that's been a lot of fun. Well, well now these, uh, the things you mentioned on the beginning of on the photography and critiques and so forth and beginning fly. Are those yeah. are Zoom sessions you guys are hosting yourself? Oh, are it's the fly clubs? fishing show. Yeah. Ben oh, the Prince fly fishing. Piece. Okay. Yeah, the fly fishing show. So we're a couple of the experts that they're doing the Zoom classes with. So okay. uh, they have a virtual page that you can go to and sign up for them. But both okay. of them are two and a half hours long, yeah. So that's what I was get yeah, I was getting I want to make sure everybody knew. The flyfishingshow.com, is that where people are gonna find that, I think? Yeah. If you put in the fly fishing show virtual show, then you get a list of there's I think that starts off with all the places where they're doing localized with vendors and other things, and then if you scroll to the bottom there's the experts classes. And those are held on separate days with times and stuff listed. Okay. And that's okay. where you sign up for those. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. That's good to know. And that's a good thing, folks, if you want to get, I mean, that's, I went to school for, for commercial photography, and that's how you learned every week was getting a critique from your teachers, and sometimes brutal ones. But yeah. but that's where <laughs> you'll learn about things that you aren't seeing and, and train yourself mm-hmm. to see in the future. So I'd take Carol up on that and attend that if you're interested in improving your photography. I think it'd be a great way to, to do so. Good, good. Well, yeah. you guys are always busy. You're always busy doing yeah. something. Uh, yeah, so, good. Uh, huh? We weren't sure that yeah. was going to happen during this whole pandemic, but we've stayed busy, so we're grateful, really. <laughs> Very well, grateful. The, yeah, the whole industry is has been busy. I mean, yeah. I think in Colorado they sold 70,000 more fishing licenses in 2020 than 2019. And I think Isn't that's that nationwide as well because people were getting out and fishing, which – the biggest problem we've heard in the industry, because I deal, I do digital marketing for a lot of fly fishing companies, 
The biggest problem is, is getting raw goods or components to, to make things with. That's the, the supply chain is really backed sure. up. Yeah, but sure. people are selling, but they can't sell because they don't have the stuff to sell. It was dilemma. Well, it's a different you know? time, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So if it's not one yeah. thing, it's the other, right? Yeah. Got plenty exactly. of stuff and no buyers. <laughs> you know, right. Got plenty right. of buyers and no stuff. So that's. <laughs> but, but otherwise, I think it's not hurt the industry in a great, a great way, as far as I've heard. So that's a yeah. good thing. Other than yeah. Ben Ferminski, of course, is suffering big time from this because he lost all his shows, which is. Sure. Uh, Terrible for him. Oh, yeah. And it's so just sorry for him. Drop. Yeah. It's, it affects a lot of people more than the people in the shows. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Vendors yeah. and restaurants and hotels and all that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just goes all the way down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, good. Let's talk about phones. So I have seen incredible stuff, in fact, on TV commercials with people using phones to shoot videos and stills. And some of the work is just incredible. I mean, it looks like right. the motion picture studio did the work and people are doing this with their, just their little phone. And I think that's amazing. So what do you think, maybe we talk about what are the, the pros and cons of using a phone and kind of explore that a bit? Oh, sure. Well, I think the biggest limitations that I found, at least with my phone, is that I can't do... I can't close in really far because I do a lot of insect photographs and I do a lot of fly photographs. So closing in as far as I need to, I need I need a better camera for that. So there's some limitations on that end of it. The other thing is that anything that you take digitally is going to need some processing afterwards. And I really do like the editing program that's in the iPhone 7. It's easy to use. The thing that can get you in the end is that if you overprocess, and that's true with anything. And, and this gets back to another thing just with digital in general, is that it's important because you're paying for, no matter what camera you have, you're paying for the pixels and the real estate. You want to shoot the picture as close as you can to what you want. You just don't want to take anything extra. You don't want to have to crop a lot afterwards, even though sometimes you have to because of your position or you can't get close enough or something's going on that's going to, you know, there's a lot of factors that can affect that. So you want to take the picture the best that you can right from the start because then you can spend less time post-processing. And sometimes I can't even tell on my phone that I've over-processed it. It's when I get it off there on my computer that I can see that it's either too warm, the colors aren't quite right, or something like that. But minimal processing is best basically just to save you time. And the other thing is to have it look real, that it doesn't look um, too far off scale of what you were actually looking at. What do you find yourself doing most in that post-processing? Mostly is it kind of goes back to way, way back in, I think it was 2009, when we did Trout Flies for Rivers and I was learning Photoshop. It was Rick Hayfley that told me, because I was really overwhelmed by this program, he told me to just do three things. That's correct the color, correct the contrast, and sharpen it, and that's it. And mm -hmm. if you stick with that from the beginning and you just do that, and then you add things if you feel like you need to take out some highlights or deepen the shadows or something. I use clarity quite a bit in Lightroom. That just seems to sharpen everything up pretty quickly. I don't adjust tint or color too much, but just stick with a few things like that. And then if you need to add something in the odd shot, I find that, Really, those three things, color, contrast, and sharpening are, 
are the things that I use most often. Okay, okay, good, good. Yeah. What other things about, I know some of the new phones have all kinds of like three lenses or something now. I'm not actually familiar <laughs> with that, but, right. but they're getting better at telephoto, I think, as well as macro, which you were talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. You can zoom in on some things that are far away, but it just, I think what's happening is it's really cutting in on the number of pixels that you have, so your image isn't always as sharp. Yeah, so you, yeah. It's got a limited range in what it can take as far as close-up and distance. And if you're just shooting something like just a short video, or I shoot video when we're out there with it because it's something I can post easily to Instagram and Facebook mainly. That's when I really started using my phone more. Just a lot easier than taking it off my camera and going through all that. But... There does seem to be a certain range where the, the photos are clear and um, concise and sharp, and that seems to be that middle range rather than yeah. very close or very far away. Yeah, yeah. Josh Friedman from Illinois wrote in. He says He's asking what kind of camera would you recommend for fishing and landscape pictures. He says, I want simple like point and shoot because I don't want the camera to get in the way of enjoying my trips. That's important. And want better photographs than my phone. But yet... The phone <laughs> might do a yeah, darn good job for you, right? Yeah. Right. And I think there's another thing I kind of realized, too, over the years is that even the individual phone within a line, even another iPhone 7, they're not all exactly the same. They're, I think a lot of them are very close. But sometimes I'm just saying that because sometimes you get the odd one that just doesn't work. Mm. So I'm only saying that because, like, for – I would still go back to, for him, I would still look at the Olympus, the stylus, mm -hmm. tough. Because that camera is just, for anybody that's out there with a point-and-shoot that wants to take something, I mean, it shoots raw, and you can adjust your shutter speed and your, your f-stop and all that for depth of field. You can get deeper into it if you want to. I don't know about, it might have some settings, too, where you just put it on landscape and then it shoots it sets the camera for you so you can just take the shot. But I would seriously look at that one for any kind of point shoot when you're out next to water and you want to take some scenes around you and or mm -hmm. take fish and stuff like that, yeah. Does that have any kind of a zoom lens or it's just a one focal No, as far lens? as I know, well, it might have a, some of those, like the Canon that I had, actually did have a zoom lens on it, but it just wasn't a really broad range of zoom. It was a short It was one of those... Digital zooms, I suppose, right? Rather than yeah, it could be actually, right where it yeah, kind of interrupts, yeah. takes away from the pixels that you've got, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. noticed that's a 12 megapixel as well. That tough. What? And I guess it, it depends on where you want to go with that photograph, right? I mean, right. If, if unless I don't even know how. Do you know how big a 12 megapixel image could be blown up and still be a nice print? If you want to do you know, it on that the wall. Yeah, that's an excellent question, and it was one that I had, too. And I, when I did one of the shadow boxes, it had a, okay, this was a 36-inch by 40-inch shadow box. It was a huge shadow box. The photograph was 30 by 24, something like that, and it was a 12-megapixel, and it was great. It really, that's probably the largest I'm ever going to blow up any of my photos. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the ratio is. I'm pretty sure that you can find that online. I went into, actually, it was, if anybody wants to have something scanned or if they want to get information like that, the guys at the 
FedEx office places, it's surprising. The people that are down here in Silverdale are just, in our neighborhood, are so knowledgeable about this stuff. And he was the guy that told me you won't have any problem doing a print that big. Mm. And there was that big pixel war where cameras were going up in pixels, and it went right. to the D800 where you were getting something like 30, it was like 38 pixels or something. And everybody was jumping on that, and there's 60 megapixel cameras and all these. And I've found the 12 is just fine. And, I mean, it kind of quieted down after that. But the thing is when you get to a camera like that, it ends up being a landscape camera, which, and when I say landscape camera, what I mean is you've got something where you're setting up the shot on a tripod where there's no movement because any movement with that number of pixels is going to cause some kind of blur. So it's really a landscape camera, just as it is when you go up higher than that. And that's why that's it's something that I was looking at. I was looking at that camera for a while, but with the shots that I take, it wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. Not with action, mm-hmm. not with water yeah. flying everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So my, yeah. my D700 at 12 megapixels is perfect. It, it works great. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah. maybe for Josh, it's more about if he wanted to take a next step up from the phone, it would be to this Olympus Tough, and he might get some more security, more secure feeling by knowing right. he could drop it in the drink. I guess some right. of the new phones you can are waterproof as well. But, I think that's uh, right, yeah. yeah. And they so, also have casing where you can take – Heather Hodson actually takes some phenomenal shots just half in, half out of the water with a casing on her camera, and they yeah. look great. So there's all kinds of accessories you can get, too, to help you get the shot that you want. Yeah. yeah, I've seen some things. I haven't tried them either, but I've seen some like clip-on telephoto lenses or something that you can clip on. I don't yes. know what the quality is, but I, I have seen those. Something to try. Right. Let's see. All right, all right, I'll read this one. Phil McCartney in Kentucky wrote in. He says, do you take pictures of fish with a phone's camera? If so, what sort? We've kind of covered that. For some reason, the fish I catch seldom appear to be as beautiful and large in the photos <laughs> I take with my phone as they really are, of course. Yeah, as long as your arm, right, Phil? My friends report the same trouble. My wife says it must be my phone's camera because its pictures taken of me never show me as attractive as I truly am. <laughs> We've been married for 42 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So everybody's eyes are foggy after being married for 42 years. Everything looks good. (laughs) Yeah, that was well put, Phil. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think there's two things in that. I do like the fish pictures that I get with my iPhone 7, and I think any of the ones probably after this are probably fine too. Now, he mentions another thing in here, not as beautiful and as large. So how do you show size in a picture? And the classic way to do this is to show it against something known, something that somebody can relate to, like a person's hand or an arm or something like that. So that can show size. The thing that I started doing lately is I used to try to tape measure my fish, and it was always like, this isn't working. I'm keeping them out too long, and they need to go back in the water, and you're always stressing about that, about just keeping the fish safe and all the survival. And so what I started doing was putting my rod next to them so I could measure it later, and that is so simple and easy. And so if I really want to know size and I just want a simple fish shot, I do it with my iPhone 7, and I put my rod next to it and just line up the fish on Mm -hmm. there. So Mm -hmm. that works out really well. Yeah, 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 good idea. 
Yeah, there was, and I think it's later. Yeah, it might have been old video guy. Yeah, Gene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the guy. Yeah, we know who he is, but uh, he put his yeah. name as old video guy. But we know who you are, Gene. He wrote in, and we see this all the time. So I want to get your take on this too. He says, "How do you make a fish look bigger in a photograph?" So there's a lot oh, of cheaters yeah. out there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and so there's some distortion with the camera, right? I mean, this kind of gets back to what the camera sees and what we see. And so when we're in person looking at that, it doesn't look distorted like that. But because of the curvature of the lens and other things, you'll get more of almost a wide angle. So when you hold the fish out closer to the camera, it's going to look bigger in relationship to you because there's also some collapse of the image, too. So it doesn't necessarily look like they're holding the fish close to the camera, but the closer you get it to the camera, the bigger you can make the fish look, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I've seen some 12-inch uh, rainbows turn into 24-inch <laughs> monsters <laughs> in some of these shots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whatever it takes well, to impress your friends, you know. Just, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, and I, so, I don't uh, know if you want to. I don't know if you want to segue into uh, a couple of questions there were about taking pictures of fish and how to keep them. Before yeah. we get to that, the one more thing, uh, a couple more things on equipment, I think. Yeah. We talked about protecting. Uh, Florian asked about that. There was questions about GoPro. Do you use GoPro for anything? I've been kind of coveting the GoPro for a long time because I've wanted to have that, just something to strap on and do video and all that. And I haven't invested in one yet, but mm-hmm. I can tell him what I would do if I got a GoPro camera, because it's a new camera again, and it goes back to kind of what I said before, is I would just read the manual end-to-end, take a few things out that were that I thought that I would probably most likely use that camera for, and then I would shoot around my house a lot with it before I ever got mm-hmm. out on the water and got comfortable with where the settings are and how it operates and what kind of picture it takes. So yeah. that would kind of be my advice on that. Yeah, and one thing about that is about those kinds of cameras with that might take a housing as well. I found out I bought one. I'm trying to remember. I think it starts with a Y, but it's like a it's like a knockoff of the GoPro, right? Does everything right. GoPro does, but you know, a few hundred dollars cheaper. But what I found out later on is that it didn't fit in some housings and stuff that I wanted it to fit into, like um, the kind where you're trying to shoot underwater and above water at the, the split screen yeah. kind of shots. Yeah. And so watch out for if you buy something other than a quote GoPro. Uh, a lot of the accessories and stuff are made specifically for GoPros that yeah. I found out and don't work with some of these knockoffs. So just a little right. thing I learned. I don't know that I really saved any money because I'll probably end up now going and buying a GoPro, <laughs> but right. it probably cost me more, you know. Exactly. So, anyway, yeah. so be, be yeah, careful. I think that go- about that. Yes, about accessories and getting something that fits. Well, And I yeah. think that goes back to just getting – I think the best equipment you can afford, but nothing more than what you need, you know, because then you're getting, you're not like finding out later that it's not going to do exactly what you want, or it's not giving you the quality of image you want and all that, but all the, it'll save you money in the long run if you just do it right from the beginning. You know, that's a good point because if you take whatever you have now and try to learn the most about what you have now, you might surprise yourself at getting better pictures than you've been getting and then say, okay, well, I really would like to, 
you know, have a 500 zoom lens or something. Well, now you're in a whole other world. But uh, <laughs> until then, there's probably a whole bunch of stuff about your current device, whatever it might be, that you aren't using and you could be yeah. using. I think that's really a good point rather than go just to spend money to have something new and different. You know? Right. Um, right. You got to invest some time, right? You got to invest some, some learning time. Yeah. Yeah. It really does come down to practice and planning and just doing things over and over again and just getting it set and learning the basics. I took a photography class. Oh, it's been several years ago now just to see what I was missing. Cause I, Everything that I've done pretty much self-taught. It's been handed down to me by other people. I've attended lectures, things like that. But I wanted to attend a class to see, okay, am I getting the crux of this or do I need to go deeper? And really, I didn't learn anything until the last day. And this is what he said, and it was so important. It was worth that whole six weeks of class. But he just said, learn, just kind of what I've been saying already, is learn everything. Learn the fundamentals and the basics really well. And then when you've got all that down and it's like second nature, you can just grab your camera and you know what to do to adjust it to get the shot, then you start breaking the rules. And that's mm-hmm. where creativity comes in, is there. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, he's right. So often we're locked into the rules. But if somebody's telling you you can't do it, and you think, well, why can't I do it? I mean, really, is it, is it really, what if I could get something really cool out of that? I think that's yeah. what it, it comes down to, and you start thinking outside the box. But you have to have the fundamentals down first yeah. before you yeah. do that. Because otherwise, it just, you end up <laughs> with stuff that doesn't make any sense. But Yeah, yeah. I, I remember taking a picture of my, a portrait of my father when I was in school. That, and he was bald. And all I took <laughs> was from just below his eyes up and then blank space above his bald head and that was my portrait i mean i was breaking all the rules with that one but it was like yeah that's that's getting back to selective vision again right yeah distracted by his head yeah it was it worked i mean it's what i wanted but i was i was breaking the rules as we'll find out here that's awesome though yes (laughs) that's prominent Um, feature yeah yeah there was one question about equipment and then we'll we'll get into the photography here Florian in Quebec, Canada, asked about, are you using polarizing filters or any other filters when you're shooting? Yes. So I use a circular polarizing filter. I have one fitted to all the lenses that I have. I have three lenses, and they're all, they're, well, the, the macro is not a zoom, but the other two are. Mm-hmm. And I have a warming filter, just a mild warming filter, and I have a graduated neutral density filter, but the one I use by far and away the most is a circular polarizer. Mm-hmm. And I've found that invaluable because one of the things that can really mess up your photographs is glare. So, and water is full of glare, and so it's so are fish. So when you're shooting fish from the side, if you're getting that glint off there, you're missing the pattern and you're missing the color because it's washed out. So mm-hmm. circular polarizers are great. And the thing initially, so I used those even when I was using slide film, but it does cut down the light that gets to your camera. It takes out anywhere from one to three stops of light, depending on the filter. So that means you have to adjust other things in your camera to compensate for that so enough light gets in so your picture isn't too dark. But, yeah, those are what I use. And I've found a circular polarizer just indispensable for shooting fish and to enrich color of anything, any kind of landscape. It, mm. When it takes the glare out, it pumps up the color. Yeah, yeah. yeah. end of the sky, yeah, really. Yes, sky. Gets into a nice thing. blue, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, so let's talk about taking better pictures here. We've, we've kind of uh, talked about, of course, and we didn't go into great depth about SLRs, but basically you're getting a heavier duty or camera with a variety of possibilities for lenses and so forth that you can't do on a point and shoot or a, yeah. or a phone kind of thing. But I mean, we could spend all night it, just talking about those. But, well, right. Yeah. Well, and I think here's yeah. a point that Brian O'Keefe made. A lot of people know Brian O'Keefe from just the photography of fly fishing rep. Right. But he said you can take a great photograph with any camera, even a disposable mm -hmm. camera, like the time you get at weddings that you just pick them up and they're done after one. You can get a great shot with those. It's just you won't get as many. So good equipment gets you into better shots, and then you get back into, well, the photographer really is the one composing the shots. Color composition and light is going to make the big difference. But it was a good point that he made, though. You can yeah. get good shots with any camera. It's just you're not going to get as many if you're not using a certain level of equipment. Yeah, and it's what I said earlier about a lot of these shots I see people taking with their, their iPhones or whatever, yeah. their Androids. And, but a lot of it happen, has to be in the right place at the right time with the right yeah. light, and yeah. you can get lucky. Luck is things. a huge part of it. It's, yeah. You know, it's, you have to prepare yourself because things happen that you never expect. <laughs> yeah. And definitely luck is a huge part of it. Right place, right time, and luck. Yep. Yeah. The old video guy asked, when to use artificial light or flash outdoors? Yeah, I'm a big proponent of natural light, and the only time something like that would come up is just, it just has to do with even lighting. If it's getting mm -hmm. a little dusk or dark out, then yeah, you'd use something like that. I use, I have used flash and I use floodlights, but really just only in the studio when we're shooting fly shots or some kind of setup studio shot then I do use that, but most of the time natural light is my friend, and I feel most comfortable with that. And there's a lot of photographers that are really good with using artificial light or flash. I've seen some phenomenal photographs with that, and I just kind of stick with natural light myself. Yeah, yeah, flash fill can be advantageous, you it know, can. especially in the horse sun, mm -hmm. especially with people. I know a lot of people like to, to do that, but that takes some practice. You have to get out there and see it what does. the settings are. and make sure that's going to work and doesn't look really artificial you know what i mean right. some of those flash fills look like they they got a set of car lights hitting them and it looks really bad so most of the time with flash like that i've seen it overblown and but one right. of the places that kind of reminded me one of the places that you can use that when you're shooting an angler and the hat is causing a shadow across the face that right. fill in yep. flashlight makes a huge difference but it's like you said you really have to practice with it to get the effect you want so it doesn't look artificial yeah yeah scott nelson in portland oregon asks how many frames do you shoot of a particular subject for stock work now that depends it depends on the subject and how good the conditions are and if things are changing rapidly or not so if i'm not sure if i'm getting it typically i've noticed that in my particular work pattern like if i'm shooting something like the other day i was out shooting uh, hatching coronamids on a lake and i was on the dock but typically i start off further back and then i close in and a lot of the problem with shooting something like that is when you have wind come up and there's movement, and so your subject isn't going to be in focus, and you're using a macro lens. But I'll shoot anywhere from 10 to 20 shots sometimes if I'm not sure if I got it. And I keep shooting until I'm sure that I've got it. Yeah. Sometimes it takes a lot less than that. Sometimes it's like the conditions are 
static. The lake surface is flat. For in that example, like the chronomids, the lighting is perfect. Everything is working out. Then I don't need to take as many. But if I'm unsure and things are changing, I keep shooting until I'm sure I have it. And that can be 10, 15 shots a lot of times, sometimes more. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the advantage of digital nowadays is you can look and see, right? You know, yes. check. Yeah, you know, it didn't used to be yeah. that way. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, and that's the problem when you've got a hatching insect in front of you and it's going quickly. Fortunately, they, yeah. I think they were kind of, these coronamids were a little stunned by the cold, I think, because they were coming out a lot slower than what I'm used to. Usually they just they hit the surface and they're out, and it's really hard to get a shot of them. But when they're changing like that, I didn't have time to really check my focus. I checked a couple of them and then I just went back and just kept shooting. And that's yeah. where actually the burst, like if you can shoot right. 11 frames per second, if you can do something like that, if you can get your depth of field, which is just the part of your picture that's in focus, if you could extend that, especially on those macro shots, you have a better chance of getting it. You know. Yeah, I totally it. think a lot of people, considering that nowadays you don't have the cost of film like you used to and you used to be more, yes. you know, careful about how much you were shooting. But since that's not an issue and you have these cards with multi gigabytes worth of uh, data storage. <laughs> yeah, right, to, to use, exactly. Use, use that burst for people too. Because a lot of people, if you're not used to capturing an expression at the right moment, then yeah. uh, you'll miss it. And that's where professional portrait photographers know when to capture that person's expression. But if you use the burst, you've got a good chance of getting it. Uh, yeah. and go back and, and yeah. find the shot later. I mean, yes. I did that the other day, taking a picture of my 90-year-old mother at her birthday, probably blowing out the candles. And I got Perfect. it just right, just her face expression of blowing, and, but it's yes. a timing issue. So that burst thing, I think, is that used to, that's a, a great way to, to capture moving yeah. subjects as well, yep. action, yes. fish trying to be netted or something. Trying to, that would be a great place yep. to use burst, I think. Yeah. Sleeping fish. That's the Sleeping, one that still yeah. gets me. It's when you first hook them and they like those Kamloops rainbows and they come charging out of the water. It's like, dang, that's gone. Yeah. <laughs> but a burst would have gotten it. If you just, it, it's timing and everything else. And yeah. luck, too. Yeah. 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 Let me take a quick break here and then we'll come back okay. and we'll talk more about getting good pictures, excellent pictures with whatever you've got out there. So hang tight. We'll be right yeah. back. Enrico Puglisi Flies prides themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com. Again, epflies.com. And do a little shopping today with Enrico. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Carol Morris about photography and how to capture what you see. If you want to ask Carol, a question, go to our homepage, fill out that form, send us a question, and we'll see if we can't get it answered tonight. Let me browse some of these questions that came in on the internet here, Carol. So I don't want to, let's see, how do you get good photos? Uh, this is Ken Boucher in Huntsville. How do you get good photos of fly tying? Oh, of fly tying. I'm wondering if he's talking about, oh, okay, so he's talking about stepwise. I think not so. video, yeah. but yeah, stepwise. Right photos well when we shoot for skips 
fly tying books. It's quite, it's actually quite a simple setup, just on a desk downstairs with a neutral color behind two floods that are color corrected, and then often two flashes, one above and below. A note about the background is that I like to use kind of neutral earth tone colors. I think it's easier on the eye and it doesn't take away from the, the fly. So browns and, and things like that. But the further away you get it from the fly, the darker that background's going to be. And conversely, the closer you get it, the lighter it's going to be. Often in fly tying photographs, you've got different color materials. You're trying to light up the perimeter of the flies and the materials so it kind of gives it a little rim light. And that goes back to the flash being on the bottom and the one on the top and getting it a little bit behind the fly so it kind of backlights it a little bit. And then you just experiment like crazy. I mean, that's really just our setup. It isn't anything fancy, but it takes, with digital, so much better, like you mentioned. I mean, when we used to do this with slides, you'd just take, I don't know, at least a roll, maybe a roll and a half. You've got 36 pictures on it, and you can expect one to three of them coming out okay. Hmm. It just, that's just slide film. And I was glad to read that at some point that they said that is, that's the percentage you're going to get on good shots on slide. But with digital, we can look at it and back up and we just play with the light a lot. The overhead light goes off. We just have the floods and everything else on it. We take several pictures if we're not getting in there what needs to be seen, because a big thing about fly tying photographs is to be clear and this is really any photograph, it's easy to lose sight of what you're trying to show because you know what you're looking at and you know what you're trying to show, but does your viewer know what you're trying to show? And so you have to Mm -hmm. dissociate yourself a bit from it and look at the content of what you've got in the picture and make sure everything is in there that is conveying the message you need to say. And it can be tricky. So closing in on fly shots as close as you can get, only back off if you're showing something like a dubbing loop or or something like that where you have to show the instrument and you've got a a bunch of dubbing down in the loop, and so it's kind of going out of the frame. You just have to be very conscious, again, of what you're shooting and that you're showing that what you're showing is actually what you're trying to convey. Those are kind of my tips on flies and fly tying. And you're definitely going to need a macro lens for that kind of work. Yeah. Right. I just don't think that's where you get into the phone. And even the point and shoots are not going to get close enough unless they actually right. have a macro function. But some of that might be taking away pixels. You have to be careful with what you get out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, and that was macro uh, lens. next question, David Myers in, in Morrison, Colorado. He says, have you experimented with inexpensive macro lenses available for iPhone? Would you recommend them, or would you say it's necessary to invest in high-end professional gear for capturing fish, aquatic insects, and other stream-side shots, and I would say, and fly tying? Yeah, Um, and fly tying, too. Yeah, Um, yeah. You know, here's the thing about that that I would say is if they don't cost much, I mean, if, if it's not a huge outlay in money, then I would go ahead and invest in it and see what you get. Or look at reviews before you do that. That's always a good thing to do. And see what other people say about it. Like, if they're really just getting bad reviews, not worth the time. I have not experimented with them myself. I use, I have a 105-millimeter macro lens that I use on my Nikon that I just, I absolutely love. It just, it's always done the job for me. I had a 60-millimeter at one time, but I had a switch because... With a 60, you have to get up so close, insects were flying off. They were freaked out. It was right in their face. Or mm-hmm. fish, you just have to get too close. 
But if it's something that you can invest in and give it a try on your phone, I would do it if you're comfortable doing that. And then if it doesn't work out, you can always sell it on eBay. It's something like that. I don't know how much they cost. Yeah. But no. it, it might be willing, if you're just looking at trying to get something that you're going to post to Instagram or Facebook and you just want something quick, it might work. It might do the t- ticket. It, it yeah. just might do yeah. it. Yeah. Another question from Jay Murakoshi in Fresno. It says, do you shoot 100% manual or do you use the camera's auto settings? Oh, when I started out, I shot 100% manual. And that was just to, so I learned the camera. I shot that way for a long time with slides. And then I, what I did is I switched to aperture priority. So I now I just shoot on aperture priority and I adjust the shutter speeds. I just because I have to get a certain part of the picture in focus and it's action, I just find that having me setting the aperture and then the camera sets the shutter speed is basically what it is. And then if I'm not getting a fast enough shutter speed, then I go back to the camera's controls and I change the ISO. So that's the film Mm -hmm. speed. And I just take it up until I get a a comfortable uh, shutter speed. And typically you're not going to get movement around uh, 125 it usually reflects, oh, this is getting back into some stuff I learned a long time ago, but usually you have to go with the ISO number or higher is what mm-hmm. I remember. You have the film mm-hmm. speed or higher on your shutter speed. But handheld, typically at 125, you can do it. So right. I'm, if I have something solid on a tripod and I don't have a subject that's moving, I can go lower than that. I know that with casting, per se, like Lefty Cray used to use one, 125, one twenty-fifth of a second because he said there was just a little bit of blur in the line, so the line really showed up. So mm-hmm. that was something that made it wider, do. yeah, it thicker line yeah. kind of thing, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's see. Treg wanted to repeat the Olympus model. The Olympus model was a Olympus Tough TG-6, is what I found out there. And there's some incredible pictures that they have shown that were taken yeah. with it. Really nice yeah. stuff. So that's again. The Olympus Tough TG-6. And Jamie Koshi wrote in here, he says, I believe the Olympus T-Series has a polarizer lens only. I don't know about that. He says, I have a dinosaur T4 that has been dropped, dunked, bounced around. He says, I'm still <laughs> using it underwater for video in his pool to show underwater motion and stuff. So cool. it sounds like it's, it is a durable device. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's what I've read and heard. Yeah. Treg Owing says, for measuring fish, you can tattoo a ruler on your leg. I guess, <laughs> Treg, you have to send me a picture of yours because I want to see it. <laughs> no, no kidding. <laughs> so, uh, I think he, he he must be sitting in the bar listening tonight or something. Right. I know he's, yes, I think Treg be. used to be a bartender or something. But anyway, some of the other things that we've got here, I want to jump way down because I think it's important for a lot of people and and that was something you mentioned in I think in your presentations, the rule of thirds. And I think okay. this can make for better pictures for a lot of people with just using that simple technique. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. The rule of thirds is basically if you think of dropping two vertical lines equidistant across your picture and two horizontal lines equidistant on your picture, it looks like a tic-tac-toe board, right? So you have nine squares. So any place that the lines intersect is a place around that where you can put the subject. 
So it's an option for subject placement or horizon line where you don't have a horizon line directly in the center, but you can move it up into the upper third or down below. It makes the picture more active. What you're trying to do is engage the viewer's eyes to move. And when you put the subject dead center, which isn't in itself bad, because if that's what you want, like product shots, if you're just trying to show something and it goes right in the center, it just is a very static image. The eyes aren't going to move from that, it's, so it's right dead center. But when you move it off center to one of those intersecting points on that tic-tac-toe grid, then you're creating eye movement, and it makes it a more interesting image. Yeah, yeah. And I think if, especially if you're doing maybe scenics or person in the river fishing or something, that works really yes. well to position them nicely. But that, that will improve your photographs immensely mm -hmm. by trying to, to follow that rule. Right. Here's one I think we need to address. Catherine in Eugene, Oregon. Carol, one thing that confounds me while fishing is how to take a shot when I'm fishing by myself. Usually when I hook into a fish, anyone with a camera is up or down river and too far away to run over and take a shot. I don't want to stress the fish, but I get stressed attempting a steady one-handed capture while holding my rod, trying not to drown and trying not to lose the fish or the camera <laughs> in the river. Any tips for single-handed shot takers? Thanks, Catherine. Oh, yes. Catherine and I think Kate also, Kate Lodge, is asking something yeah. similar. Is this taking this picture yeah. um, of a fish by yourself. So this is what I do. You have to, first of all, mentally kind of set yourself up for the best chance of success, and that's planning and practice, okay, those two things. The plan is have your camera ready at all times. That doesn't necessarily mean out but it means set up to where you want it. If it's your phone, it's usually not a problem. You just click on the phone icon and you're kind of ready to shoot. But you want to have everything set up so you're ready to go because that just takes too much time when you're playing the fish and then you've got it in. So the thing that I notice, so after the camera's ready, is that after you've played the fish, there is a recovery time. And the recovery time often, at least to keep, keep fish wet people, are saying t you have 10 seconds to take the photo or have the fish out of water, basically, and that's plenty of time to take even a short video or several shots of the fish. So this is what I found helps. So I've played the fish. I brought it in. It's going into its recovery phase of just catching its breath. I take the hook out. I set my rod down next to it so I have a measurement, and then take the shot. This works so well on rivers and creeks, I would say, not so much lakes, but rivers and creeks, I'm not touching the fish. It stays in the water. It's typically on its side. The hook's already out so that I can take as many pictures as I want, even a short video. It's kept in the water. I don't have any of the problem with removing the fish slime that's important. The fish takes the time it needs to recover, and then when it goes to swim off, I can videotape it swimming off. There's a picture, my profile picture on Facebook has a picture of a brown trout that I caught and did that with, and it was so easy to do is that I didn't have to balance the rod because I had it in the water by me. I had a way to measure the fish afterwards so I know how big he was. I had time to take the shot. I didn't stress him out by handling him at all or remove any of the fish line that was there. It, it all works really seamlessly, and I was using my phone. I had my phone in my pocket and I just took it out. And I think the other thing is 
there's something that I had to come to grips with in photographing fish is that I was always trying to get pictures of every single fish. And that was because we use a lot of those in print and in publishing in the books and articles and stuff. But there was a point in which I realized some fish do not want to be photographed and they're too mm-hmm. freaked out and you have to let them go. It's not worth it. It's like, it's such a small percentage of the overall number. I only had one day that I can think of that I was out on this creek and we're trying to photograph fish, and every single one of them was flipping out, and it's like we couldn't get it. Sometimes that happens, but it's very rare. If you're in a boat and you're by yourself and you're catching fish, I'm kind of assuming that you're anchored because the first thing is you don't want the boat to be floating away when you're taking pictures. So if you're anchored and set up, you land a fish, you use a net, I shoot them in the net. And then I shoot them going out of the net, and I shoot them going down into the deep and, and swimming away. If I want unusual fish shots other than, because most of those that I've gotten with the, when I'm by myself and I take the hook out and the fish is recovering, they're on their side. So it's a pretty set standard fish shot, but it just shows the pattern and um, the beauty of the fish and all that. So I like doing that, but for unusual fish shots, I do use the second person and, and then I just take shots from unusual angles, the front of the fish, just the tail, the dorsal fin, the gill plate, if that's interesting, really closing in. But mm-hmm. sometimes you need help. But for just people that are out there on your own taking those shots, this works very well. And I, I really think that the other thing is to remain calm because we get really excited when we catch fish. I certainly do. But I've noticed, and this comes from my years as a veterinarian, in working with dogs and cats and horses and even fish, is that if you remain calm, that takes that whole part of the excitement out of the equation so it doesn't transfer that energy to the animal because they definitely feel it and sometimes Mm -hmm. even that doesn't work but most of the time just remaining calm yourself and having a set plan and practicing that you'll have plenty of time to take those shots and you won't get your rod tangled up and you'll keep the fish wet and your camera dry I'm going to put in a plug here, too, for a product out there. I have to be one of my clients, but is Opro's Gear makes a rod holder that you can put on your belt, and you can just snap your rod into and get rid of your rod if you're not shooting your fish against the rod, but just to get your hands free and to do other things. It's a really slick little device. I think it's like 25 bucks or something. O as in O P R O gear.com and uh, it's a nice thing to just get get the rod away and not have to drop it in the drink or that kind of thing so that's another piece of gear that might come in handy Um, one thing I noticed too Carol is it depends on how long you play the fish too like we were fishing last year up here in Colorado and catching some big fish 20 plus inch fish hefty ones and we were purposely bringing them to the net quickly Okay, and they still had a lot of spunk in them, and they were <laughs> hard to hold. I mean, with both hands and, and having somebody else take the picture, it was hard to hold on to those fish because they were not wore out. Yeah. So I think it depends on how long you play them, too, which is a lot of people say get them in quick to, to keep, their, yeah. keep them healthy. But if you get them in quick, they're hard to handle. And if you play them out, then they're easy to handle, but you might be killing them. So kind of a balance. Right. Well, and that goes back to using a net, I think. Yeah. I've certainly had with lake fish, I can't they're too fired up and they'll just disappear on you once you take the hook out. So a net is really important. And I think the thing too about the keep them wet, and I go over this in my my photo talk, but when you're 
the thing that's most stressful is the amount of time from capture to release. Mm -hmm. So even if you put them, say, in a photo tank, it's still capture. It's the whole stress level thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so it's that period of time. I mean, taking advantage when they're resting, but I hear you. Some of them don't want to. I mean, there certainly are fish that I brought in, and even after I farmed for a while, it's like, oh, gosh, there's no way I'm going to get a picture of this fish. It's just like they're camera shy or they're too freaked out or whatever. But what I'm trying to convey is that it is stressful when you want to take a picture and you're catching a fish and you want to keep the fish wet and your camera out of the water and your rod untangled. That's all stressful. But the way to cut down on that, the nice thing about this is when you're fishing and you bring the fish in and it's in that, if you do have one that goes into that recovery phase, you have time to hold that camera with both hands. You can just set the rod down. Everything goes really smoothly. And if you practice it, boy, it's easy. It really is easy to get the shot. Yeah. Yeah. There is a... um question here from david in san diego i can relate to this in certain respects <laughs> just because of how i was taught to shoot before phones but he right, says, right. he says thank you for doing the zoom meeting in san diego fly fishers a few months back looking forward to skip's presentation later in the year i use my camera phone a lot for pictures but i find it difficult to steady the camera i find myself holding the camera with two hands way out in front of my face so i can focus my eyes on the screen At my age, I have some issues trying to steady the camera. At least when it was a film camera, I could plaster the camera body to my face, hold my elbows close to my body, hold my breath, and lean against a solid object or use a tripod. He's got a lot of experience. Yeah, he knows. (laughs) Yeah, that's all the things you do, right? He says, with the phone, I can say shoot or take a picture so that I don't need to to thump (laughs) the screen with my finger. But if it's windy or noisy, it randomly fails to recognize my command. I can yell at the dang camera, but it will <laughs> still generally ignores me. So when I really thump the screen, that's when my attempt, uh, he says, then he really thumps the screen. So he, he says, is there any techniques for steadying a, a camera phone? Yeah, that that is tough. And this doesn't have to do with steadying the camera because I think you've thought of a lot of them. You need to find a solid surface. I'm having, I wear trifocals, so sometimes my eyes aren't the best at looking at the screen either. It can be hard to focus on that. And this is where you have to trust your equipment. And especially like with the camera phone, like with my iPhone, I think a lot of them do this. You just tap the screen on whatever your subject is so it focuses for you. And so you have to take some comfort in that and plus it also can adjust the light if you hit an area that's really dark really light it'll give you somewhere in between and kind of even out the light on it but this is what i would do and what i have done in the past when i have a subject that is if there's too much movement i can't get steady the subject is moving is to take a short video of it because then you can capture a screen so if you so i was shooting some dragonflies on the john day river a while ago and they were just flitting all over the place. But I did video, and then I did just a capture of one of the frames. And there's an easy way to get that. It doesn't. There's a free app online that you just put in, how do I capture a frame out of video, and, and it lets you do that. So even if, I mean, you want to take the best shot that you can, and you want to get your image in focus when you tap on the screen, and then take a short video. There's even, I have on my iPhone, there's something called a live shot, and it basically is like two to four frames of video that it shoots, and then it gives you a solid picture. So it kind of it's just a short little video. And then you can convert it to a JPEG. That's another thing that you can do too. But that's what I would do in that instance 
to try to get the shot because sometimes it is really difficult, like you said, especially if you have wind or you're in a boat and things are moving. It can be a real challenge. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we've run out of time, but I just one more question for you. What, to you, what makes a compelling photograph? Oh, man. <laughs> that's an interesting question because that's how I started getting into photography. Before I was ever a photographer, I just got intrigued with images and wondering why they worked. And I've come to different conclusions over the years, and I would say even now I'm still trying to answer that question as to what makes a compelling image. There are so many factors about it because what may be compelling to one person isn't to another. It can evoke a memory. It certainly has to do with eye movement and leading lines around the picture to get the viewer engaged, to show them something maybe they haven't seen before or something that's from a different angle that they haven't thought about looking at a familiar object in a different way. Compelling shots, gosh, I'm still, I really am still trying to answer that question. I answer a lot of it in my show, like I go through things and saying that memories, traveling vicariously, things that people haven't seen before, all these things, it means different things to different people. But I think the other thing that I've kind of moved into is that Photography, some of these compelling shots, are it's subconscious because it has to do with familiar shapes and lines that we see that we're not even aware of that might be there. And this gets into, if you look at a fractal, and a fractal is basically, no matter what magnification you look at it, whether you look at it from high, from a large magnification down to a microscopic magnification, the shape is the same. That's what a fractal is. And those repeating patterns that you see in nature are another thing that create a compelling image. There was a book by Gary Brosh several years ago called Photographing the Patterns in Nature that got me kind of started on this track. It's almost abstract in a way. But then I went to a seminar by Art Wolf, and he showed a picture of, it was an aerial of the Colorado River Delta. And when I looked at that, it really, it struck me how it looked like a tree, this is a river from the air, and it looked like a tree. And then I thought, well, it also looks like the leaf on a tree with the veins in it. And then because I'm, in, you know, I'm a tired veterinarian, in biology I'm thinking it also looks like the human circulatory system. And it just kept drilling me down further and further, macro to micro, on repeating patterns that are subconscious that create compelling images. So that's kind of where I'm at now. It's really, there, it's, there's a lot of things that create compelling images. And like I said, I'm Art. still discovering that. And that's where I yeah. started 30 years ago. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And in yeah. the end, art is in the eye of the beholder, right? So what's yes. com- compelling to you might not be compelling to another person. Yeah. Exactly. It's, Based on experiences and memories and all right. that. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I have a picture of my grand son holding a 12-inch rainbow in a net on the side of the lake, and uh, it's just a snapshot. It's very compelling to me. Yes. <laughs> it's it my grandson. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, 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 it's something that's emotional, right? A lot of memories looking at that. So, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it, yeah. it, it all depends, yeah. Well, right. that's great. Hey, we've run out of time, Carol, and we didn't really – we kind of scratched the surface. <laughs> Covered know, a lot of ground, but yeah. – uh, yeah. It's a big topic. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's never ending. Like you say, it, there's always, it's yeah. kind of like fly fishing, right? There's always something to learn. Yeah. There's always another fish. There's always another photograph. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, good. Well, hang tight with me, uh, Carol, because we're going to okay. do a few giveaways here. And sure. But, yeah, a couple of things. Uh, we're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal and a book from Stackpole Books. Stick with me here a few more minutes, and we'll do just that. Very good. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, and a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support the retreats, visit Fish on Dot org. Again, that's fishon.org, or you can call them at 616-855-4017. That's 616-855-4017. Just a reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away our prizes. The winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. So if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on, our, on your chance at uh, great prizes that we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner of one of the drawings, we'll contact you after the show to get um, your information so that we can get the, the prize to you. So the first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support. If you don't win tonight, go support them. Become a member. Uh, they do a lot of great conservation efforts, uh, both in the freshwater and saltwater, and internationally, as their name implies. So let's see here. Okay, our the first person is Karen Duncan Bonner in California. So Karen, congratulations. You just got yourself a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And our second thing we'd be giving away is Fly Fishing and Time Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. They have a lot of books they publish as well as periodicals, and um, they publish Fly Fishing and Time Journal. So our winner for that is Darren Blaney. 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 I don't know. Darren, you know what it means. <laughs> and in North Carolina. So sorry, I'm terrible with names, but... Blanny, Blanny, I think it is. Congratulations, Darren. And I'm sure you'll enjoy that uh, subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Okay, and then we're going to give away that book from courtesy of Stackpole Books. And our question is, let me clear my queue here, first of all. i got to make sure nothing's in my queue. Okay, I think we got that cleared out. So question is, to win a book from Stackpole is, Carol mentioned a filter that she uses all the time on their camera. Actually, there were two filters, but if you will name one of those two filters that she uses on her cameras pretty much all the time, give me that, and you won yourself a book from Stackpole. So let me see what we got coming here. And takes a minute for to get out there. And, okay, we've got a winner. answer is polarizing filter, Carol, and that's what I was looking for. Polarizing yeah. or warming filter were the two that you mentioned that you use quite readily. 
And this is Dr. Jonathan Cooley in Newburgh. Is that, I wonder if that's Newburgh, New York. Let me know, Jonathan, because I went to high school in Newburgh, New York, if that's where you're at. I've got some roots back there. So anyway, congratulations, Jonathan. And what you'll need to do is send me your address. I have your, your email address here and your name. I need your shipping address and as well, but I will be sending you a list of books that you can pick from. And once you pick that, then we'll get it shipped out to you. Uh, and you can use that. Just reply to the email I send you on the books and give me your address then. That's fine. Don't need to do it here. So that's it for that. I'm glad we had some winners there. and We've got more coming in. Uh, a lot of people have the right answer here as they start to roll in here. Very good. Thanks for listening and paying attention tonight, folks. Carol, I really appreciate you being with us tonight. It was fun to talk photography. I always love that. And uh, you've offered so many tips and tricks tonight. It's uh, It's been great. So thanks a lot for, for being here with us. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Well, good to have you. And hopefully yeah. all of you have found our podcast archive on our website. Just look at the top line menu, look at podcast archive, go in there, search for whatever you're looking for, and you'll probably find it. We've got over 330 shows now in the past 14 years, so we've covered a lot of ground and uh, Carol will be in there soon for photography. So check it out. I'm sure you'll find something that you'll enjoy and learn from, and uh, it'll be well with your time. Our next broadcast will be on April 7th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'll be interviewing Peter Stitcher, and our topic for the show will be what fly for what bug. Peter is an aquatic biologist who knows what flies work best to imitate the stage of insects in their life cycle. And like, are you ever confused about what fly to use? Well, when, when? Well, join us to learn about the life cycles of the most common insects we encounter on rivers and lakes and how to pick the perfect fly for the job. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lease Ferry Anglers, uh, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Rico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com. Make sure you signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.